0: Good morning everyone. Uh, sorry if I distracted you during those notices you can find everything you need to know on the website. Uh, nice to be with you again this morning and as Tim said we're tackling today we're uh, kind of picking up uh, and moving on with uh, the second half of the book the Pete Gregg book that we're reading together as a church How Do I Pray and we're picking up this morning uh, the, the easy simple subject of unanswered prayer. I don't actually know anything about this. All my prayers are answered. Every prayer I pray gets answered. But I've asked around a few people and, you know, I've found some snippets. No, seriously. um, I was... Actually, writing in my journal just a couple of weeks ago, Lord, what have you done with all of those prayers that I've been praying? You know, where are they? Are they like letters that have been piling up on the doorstep in heaven that you're sort of waiting to open? I had one of, one of those kind of honest moments about what happens to some of our prayers. And I know that for all of us, as we follow Jesus and the further we go with him, the more, and the more we pray, the more we end up with testimonies, our own testimonies of unanswered prayer you know, maybe not yet answered prayer or prayers that we would say, well, the opportunity for them to be answered has gone. I know we love testimonies of answered prayer. I love testimonies of answered prayer. It's one of my favorite things to hear how God has been moving and what he's been doing in response to the things that we've prayed and cried out for. But I know that we all have testimonies of unanswered prayer uh, as well. And so we are going to dig into that tricky subject this morning. Um and for some of us those answers or lack of answers to prayer will be bigger and more painful than others you know where were you god when this you know family member or friend or this loved one that i was praying for and believed that you were going to heal where were you when they died why did they die i've been praying to meet somebody and i'm still single I've been praying for a family member to become a Christian and they still haven't given their life to the Lord. I've been praying for breakthrough in this area. I've been praying to see you move in this area. I've been praying to see you move in my workplace, in my community. I've been praying for this and that. And, and still, Lord, those are prayers that you haven't appeared to respond to. And for some of us, the pain of unanswered prayer can be huge. I know that because I talk to lots of you. I have it myself. You know, prayers that we've prayed in faith, And that haven't been answered yet or at all in the way that we were hoping. And actually, often that then leads us on to wrestle with doubt and to wrestle with questions of God. Are you good? Where are you in these situations? Can I trust you? Whatever. So it's a massive subject, isn't it? I'm sure you don't need me to tell that. This this area of unanswered prayer is a massive subject. I don't know about you, but when I need an answer to something, I hop on Google. You know, I hop on Google because Google gives me lots of answers about all kinds of things, YouTube videos. I I reckon you can virtually build a house now with YouTube. (laughs) You know, you can find out anything you want virtually on, on Google, but there are no snappy answers to unanswered prayer. The Bible doesn't actually give us snappy answers to unanswered prayer either. And uh, therefore, we've got to be able, as we dig into this, there are some answers. As we dig into this, let's remind ourselves that we we look at it, but there is a context of mystery involved. There is a context of mystery. It's interesting, as I've been thinking about this, the, the, the Bible doesn't provide lots of answers about our answer prayer, but it acknowledges unanswered prayer, doesn't it? So if we read the Psalms, the Psalms are written, lots of the Psalms are written by people that are crying out about, God, where are you? What's going on? I'm in agony. I'm, you know, I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. You're, you're not coming through for me. You know? And ex- there's an expression in the Psalms of people who are experiencing a kind of unanswered prayer. And uh, the Bible talks a lot about suffering, doesn't it? And pain and how we can find God in the midst of really difficult, painful circumstances. Well, if all of our prayers were answered, then we wouldn't have any pain, would we? You know, there wouldn't be difficult circumstances and struggles. So there's an acknowledgement, I think, in the Bible about unanswered prayer more than there are explanations, although there are some too. And so I kind of was thinking, Lord, well, you know, Let's, I want a story. I love stories. I learn from stories. And I know many of us do. I want a story. You know, where is there a story of unanswered prayer in the Bible? And particularly in the New Testament, because the New Testament talks a lot more about praying and, and the incredible answers, uh, the incredible promises about answered prayer. You know, most of those come from the New Testament. So Lord, I, I sort of prayed, Lord, I want a story in the New Testament that we can look at and dig into. And uh, the one I have picked or felt God lead me to is in John chapter 11 and it's the story of Lazarus. You know, it'll be a familiar story to many of you, Lazarus dying and being raised from the dead, um, and it's in John chapter 11. It's, it's the majority of the chapter, and we're going to read it and have a look at it, and it doesn't provide lots of explanations, but it does provide some clues about how we handle unanswered prayer. So, like I said, if you've got a Bible, get it out. Many of you got your phones out, and the, as, well, there it is on the screen. So. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. And then skip down a couple of verses. The two sisters sent a message to Jesus. That's kind of present, that was their day language for prayer. Sending a message to Jesus, that means prayer, except that he was there in person. The sisters prayed and they said to Jesus, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. And there's an assumption, isn't there, in that statement in that cry they knew jesus well jesus was a close friend in that cry is there is an expectation your friend is sick we've seen what you do with sick people come and help but when jesus heard about it so he heard the prayer he heard the prayer he got the message he said lazarus sickness will not end in death no It happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. So although he loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so that John is making sure as we read this story that we absolutely know that the context for what happened here is that Jesus loved all of them. Although he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. He deliberately did nothing. We can't shy away from that. He heard the prayer, he heard the cry, and he stayed where he was. And then finally, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea. Skip on another couple of verses. <clears throat> he tells them to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. So he heard the prayer, he heard the cry of Mary and Martha, his friends, and Lazarus died. And for your sakes, he says, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will really believe. Come, let's go and see him. And then Thomas, I love this little detail. Why did John put this in? Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. <laughs> I mean, what's that about? What did he think was going to happen? Beautifully dramatic. So they arrive in Bethany. And when he gets there, he was told that Lazarus has already been dead in his grave for four days. So there's quite a period of time that's happened here between Mary and Martha first praying, sending their message to Jesus to come and help them and to heal their brother, and Jesus arriving. And he's then been dead in his grave for four days. And it's a short sentence. And actually, it's very easy to skip over. You know, we can't imagine what it would be like for that family. The trauma of him dying. The trauma of Jesus not turning up. You know, then the, the grief, the having to bury him, the family and the community all coming to uh, express their sympathy and, and grieve with the family. A huge deal. You know, and in the midst of it, the sisters would have been wondering, where is Jesus? Why didn't he come? Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, take note, he came too late for them, she went to meet him. Mary stayed in the house. I wonder why Mary stayed in the house. Was it that she just couldn't bring herself to go and greet Jesus because he should have come sooner and he didn't, and what was the point of him coming now? I don't know. We're not told. But Martha goes to meet Jesus. Lord, if only you had been here. This is her greeting to him. Here he comes along the road. She's come out to meet him. And the first thing, according to this, that she says is, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's an expression of faith right there, isn't it? I know that you could have done something about this and you didn't. And she's, she's acknowledging how she feels. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Not quite sure what she meant by that. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha says. He'll rise again when everyone else rises at the last day. Classic example of how easy it is for us to misinterpret prophecy. There's Jesus saying something, word of knowledge, he's going to rise again. And she immediately assumes he's talking about at the last day when Jesus comes, when essentially, you know, the world is over. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Anyone, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die, except, um, sorry, will never die. So he's talking here about a spiritual principle rather than just a physical one. He's meaning something spiritual, not literal, because we know that physically we die. Do you believe this, Martha, he says. Why is this important for him to ask her that? When she's grieving her brother and wrestling with the fact that he's arrived too late. He's asking her what, what you know what she believes. Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. I mean, bless her. You know, her brother's died. Jesus has showed up. Bless her. This dear woman expressing and articulating her faith. And then uh, she, turned, she returned to Mary. She went back to the house and called Mary aside from the Moorlands and told her, the teacher's here and he wants to see you too. And so Mary immediately got up and went to him. So she actually responds here to this encouragement to go and see Jesus herself. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so he hastily They assumed that she was going to Lazarus's graves to weep. So they followed her there. And when Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet. And guess what she says? Same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, you could have done something here and you didn't. And when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing at her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. What do we think he was angry about? was he angry at their lack of faith? Was he angry at the fact that they were all crying and he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Of course he wasn't. Of course he wasn't. Jesus is never angry at our lack of faith. He has compassion on us. I think that anger there was witnessing this scene of grief and turmoil and trouble caused by death that was never the father's plan. Death was never part of God's plan. It was never part of the original intention for creation, for mankind, for us. And I think in that moment, what rose up in Jesus was this anger, this righteous anger about what happens to us as we live in the world and experience the pain and the trouble and the suffering and what it costs us because of sin being here. It's an anger that is the other side of compassion. Where have you put him? He asked them. They said to him, come and see. And then what does Jesus do? He weeps. He weeps. He weeps at their pain and with them in their pain. And we need to remember this when we wrestle with the notion of our unanswered prayer and look for some of the answers that actually are there. He doesn't look at us and go, come on, pull yourselves together, have faith, whatever. He weeps when we're in pain. The people who were standing by nearby said, see how much he loved him. Some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from from dying? Answer yes. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested Lord, he's been dead for four days. So she knows that God can do anything that he's going to ask, but she's protesting about the the, the, uh, the tomb being opened. Interesting. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you'd see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. And then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. I I don't know about you, but I find this story quite challenging. There's some ingredients of it that, you know, I I don't kind of like or I don't understand about the way that Jesus kind of did things, why he let them go through what he did let them go through. But, you know, it is a story of unanswered prayer in one respect. It is a story. And like I said, you know, this morning isn't about explanations for answered prayer. There are some. There are some really good ones. Pete Gregg has written a brilliant book called God on Mute. I'd encourage you to read that if this is something you're wrestling with. Uh, You know, really important to wrestle with this kind of stuff. But actually, I, I want in the moments that we've got left to look at how do we handle unanswered prayer more than how do we explain unanswered prayer. But I do want to say this. We cannot begin to wrestle with and walk forward and connect with Jesus in a healthy way in regards to the prayers that we pray that don't get answered. If we don't remember the truth about the kingdom, that the kingdom is a now and a not yet kingdom. Jesus said frequently, the kingdom is now, the kingdom is here, the kingdom has come. And then he would say in another breath, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is not yet. The kingdom is not yet here. And we are a people who live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. What does he mean when he says that? He means that that when the, king, the kingdom is possible... You know, and the kingdom is available and the kingdom is accessible anywhere where Jesus, the king, is invited to rule and reign and is given full permission to rule and reign through our surrender to him, through our obedience to him, through our faith in him, whatever. Wherever Jesus is able to be fully present, there is the possibility of the rule and the reign of God breaking through into our world at that point in time. And we, as his people, should carry an expectation because of the life and the power and the ministry of the Spirit, that his kingdom will break through and could break through in any moment where his people are praying and active and surrendered and obedient. So the healings and the miracles that that were happening around him, this, this miraculous healing and resurrection, well, the resurrection of Lazarus, was the kingdom of God breaking through. You know, that was a moment where the kingdom of God broke through. But there is also the kingdom being not yet. While the kingdom of God was breaking through in Jesus fully wherever he was, we also know that the kingdom of God didn't break through. Lazarus died. Jesus was was walking in Israel, and Lazarus died. That was the not yet of the kingdom. And when Jesus was on earth, pain and suffering did not disappear fully. So there was the sense that the kingdom was breaking through in Jesus, but there was also the sense that the kingdom is not yet. And we know that the kingdom is only going to fully break through and be released completely when Jesus returns again. So we're called to pray your kingdom come. Expectation of restoration, healing, freedom, miracles, intervention, breakthrough, all those kind of things. Now, here on earth, we're called to pray that. But we need to remember that there is also resistance on this earth to the kingdom coming. Some of that resistance is in us. Some of it's in the world around us. Some of it's in the powers and principalities that Ephesians talks about that are opposed to that kingdom coming. And we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And if we remember that, it will help us when we come to the issue of unanswered prayer in our own lives don't know if it's helpful to think about it a bit like spring, you know, March the 21st next year, March the 20th, we'll be saying, yes, well, I'll be singing, yes, spring is here, love spring. But you know, what happens in March, there's a sense of sometimes the sun comes through the clouds and the days are warm and it's amazing and you see kind of new flowers coming through and then kind of the next day it's freezing cold again, isn't it? And maybe it even snows, I mean, it can even snow in May and it's kind of like spring is only fully here kind of towards the end of spring. It's a bit like that with the now and the not yet of the kingdom. So, briefly, how can we, what what does this story suggest, you know, that can help us handle this, this challenge of unanswered prayer? Firstly, five quick things. Firstly, we need to move, friends, when we're wrestling with unanswered prayer. We need to make sure that we're moving towards God. First thing that Martha did in the midst of her pain and her anguish is as Jesus was coming, she moved towards him. Now I don't know why Mary stayed in the house. Maybe for her it was more of a struggle. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But when Jesus asked for her, Mary responded and she moved towards God too with her pain. When you travel on the underground, there are all those signs, aren't there, on all the platforms and the stations? Mind the gap. I think there's a huge gap that can open up for us when we, when we hold God's promises in one hand and our experiences when they're painful because they, they don't match up with God's promises, that gap can open up for us, which is dangerous. And in that gap can grow things like discouragement and disappointment and doubt and fear and anger and resentment, all those kind of things. And they're not wrong necessarily if we deal with them in the right way, but they have the potential to pull us away from God. I know that's true in my own life. I know I can withdraw from him instead of move towards him when I get stuck uh, with the pain of what's going on, the unanswered prayer. Jesus can handle all of it. He can handle our anger. He can hang, handle our disappointment. He can handle our doubt. He can handle our unbelief. He can handle it all if we move towards him. That's the step we need to remember to take always when we are wrestling with unanswered prayer. That's what Mary and Martha did. Secondly, we need to make sure that we avoid assumptions. I've said this here before. We have this little phrase in our family, assumptions are dangerous, And assumptions are basically conclusions. They're not questions, they're conclusions about what's going on, about why this has happened or why this hasn't happened or what God is like or whatever. I heard of someone the other day whose hero of a grandfather died when he was five years old and some some well-meaning person said to this little chap, oh, God wanted, God took him because he wanted another flower in heaven so this little chap grew up into a man and for 25 years he believed that God hated him because of what that person had said. What would God be like if he took his grandfather because he wanted another flower in heaven? And he lived under this assumption that, you know, that's what God was like. And again, in the pain of our discouragement and our disappointment or when we wrestle with our doubt or we're just, you know, overwhelmed by sort of uncertainty about God and can we trust trust him or whatever, it's easy to end up making assumptions that aren't backed up by the life of Jesus. And we draw conclusions that we can't see in the life of Jesus and in the way he lived and in what he taught. And yet Jesus said, I've come to reveal the Father. I've come to show you the Father. So if we make conclusions about God that we can't see backed up in the life of Jesus or in his teaching, friends, we're on really dangerous ground and we're, we're in danger of falling into the gap. So let's, when we're standing by a graveside or when we're looking at a body that you know, still isn't healed or we're looking at a negative pregnancy test or you know we're still you know, searching for a job because we can't find one or we're still eating alone when we'd long to be you know, with somebody, let's make sure that we avoid falling into the trap of making assumptions about God, assumptions about why he hasn't answered. Mary and Martha didn't do that. They didn't come out and say, you didn't care. That's why you healed him. They didn't offer any conclusions. They moved towards him without assumptions. Thirdly, let's not make assumptions, but let's ask questions. I know I can't pull this directly from the passage, but there's another passage, isn't there, in in Matthew 17, where the disciples don't see a miracle that they've been praying for. And what do they do? They go to Jesus and they say, why couldn't we deal with this man? Why couldn't we get breakthrough? I think we're meant to ask questions. We're learners, aren't we? Aren't we disciples? which I know that means I've got more to learn. And, you know, in that passage, Jesus said, well, in this scenario, in this particular scenario, well, you couldn't deal with the situation because you didn't have enough faith. You know, I hope we're good at being challenged by Jesus about, you know, certain things. I often hear people sort of get offended when somebody challenges their level of faith. Well, I know that, you know, I've got so much more to go in my faith. I was praying about something the other day. Somebody sent me a really sort of overwhelming prayer request, this big situation. I said to the Lord, how on earth do I pray about this? And he brought that passage to mind about, you know, if you say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and do not doubt in your heart, but believe what you say, it will be done for you. And immediately it was like, well, Lord, I have got doubt in my heart. You know, I'm struggling with a few things and I'm bringing that doubt into this, you know, into this prayer. I've got doubt in my heart. Help me with it. I think we need to wrestle with some of the questions we've got. You know, again, I know some of you are doing that. We need to ask questions of God like the disciples did. Teach us. Show us. And sometimes we get answers and sometimes we don't. We can read some great books, like Pete Gregg's books, you know, Mr. Expert on Prayer. We can talk to other people. There are some answers outset there. The Bible does have some things to say about unanswered prayer. So let's ask questions rather than making assumptions. Because do you know what? Those promises, those challenging promises of Jesus about his desire to answer prayer. He's raised the bar up here. You know, whatever you ask for, you know, you will be given. I think that's a standard to draw us into, further into, deeper into relationship with him so that we, you know, we learn. Because we're holding on to this rather than just dismissing it and going, okay, well, you say this. This isn't happening. Teach me. Show me. You know, I want to learn. Okay, fourthly. And uh, I I think this is kind of the most challenging bit of the passage for me, really. We need to remember that God's purposes are bigger than our pain. God's purposes go beyond our pain. They don't prevent it. You know, verse 4, Jesus was there. He chose not to go to Bethany. He chose not to go to Bethany because... For, for whatever reason, he knew that the Father would be glorified in a greater way if there was a delay in his arriving there. And so he allowed, for whatever reason, these people that the passage makes sure we know he loved, he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He doesn't want us in any doubt about that, but he allowed them to go through that pain. And friends, we need, you know, we need, to, we need to embrace the whole of of God, the whole of what Jesus is like. And he hasn't promised us to deliver us from pain every moment that we experience pain. He promises to meet us in it. He promises to come to us in it. And he promises to use it for our good and for his glory and for his purposes. It's never wasted. But he never promises that we won't experience pain and that he won't allow us to go through pain. He didn't cause this suffering. He didn't cause Lazarus to get ill but he did choose to use it, the now and the not yet of the kingdom. But ultimately, God was glorified through it. Is that the God we believe in? Or have we got some faulty thinking about him? And then lastly, we need to choose trust over understanding. In the end, we can wrestle, we can ask questions, We can learn and we can grow in our faith, which is always what Jesus is after, learning to trust in deeper and more profound and more resilient ways that he is good, even when we don't have answers. There comes a point where we get a choice. When I can't understand, will I choose trust? Because in the end, trust isn't about understanding, is it? It's about putting, choosing to put our faith in, in someone when we don't understand what they're doing, because we believe that he is love. So we end up with a choice at certain points in time. Will we choose trust over understanding? Or is my, uh, yeah, and it, or is my trust conditional on what I can rationalize? Am I more concerned about obedience, ultimately? or explanations? Am I more concerned about surrendering to his purposes? Or is he really, am I following Jesus so that he can serve mine? Will I let the cross define who he is and how much he loves me? Or is it my circumstances that are going to define that for me? What does it say in 1 John 3? This is how we know what love is. This is how we know. Not, it doesn't say, because he answers every prayer of us. It says, because he gave himself for us on the cross. That's how we know. And when we're getting stuck, you know, when I get stuck with my unanswered prayers, God, where are you? What are you doing? Do you care? Can you hear me? I end up looking back at the cross because that's where I find the ultimate answer. Friends, Jesus tells us that we ought always to pray and never give up and never give up, never lose heart. Why do you think he said that? Because he knew that we would lose heart. We have the potential to lose heart through unanswered prayer. Yes, there are complicating factors that interfere with those prayers being answered. Sometimes, yes, God tells us that there are delays to answered prayer, but He doesn't want that stuff to make us give up. That's why Jesus says, always pray, never give up. But if we're not going to give up, we need to learn to find Him in our trouble, Him in our lack of understanding, to find Him in our confusion, to find Him in our disappointment, in our doubt. When we're struggling to believe, we need to learn to move towards Him, to find Him, to connect with His love in that place, and not wait until. We've got the answers or that we can understand enough or that he has broken through and then we can move on and kind of, you know, walk with him in that better place. In the end, we are a people, aren't we, who have a God who came to meet us in our suffering, in our struggle. And one day, one day, on that amazing day when Jesus calls time on the world, then I think, everything will become clear and we'll go, oh, that's why you did this. Oh, that's why you let that happen. Oh, you used this and I didn't realize you were going to use it. And there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. And, you know, it will all be amazing. (laughs)